opposition stopping. And so this, this disease, this coronavirus, is in some ways an opposition that we face as the people of God. What does it look like for us to continue to be the church when we can't gather as the church? When the church, in some ways at least, is defined as the gathering of God's people. And yet we scatter as God's people as well. To be the church and the stuff of everyday life. And so we don't want to let this opposition stop us. And as we look into Nehemiah chapter 4 this week, uh, we're going to see how God's people continue to do the work of God under relentless opposition and attack. So read from with me from Nehemiah chapter 4. You can read along the screen here if you can see that, or a Bible or an or a app, whichever you prefer. Let's hear God's word. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes! What are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, Ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who follow me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us. 
We thank you that nothing can separate us from your love in Jesus, your Son. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you indwell us. And we ask now that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart to see the truth of your word. We pray, God, that you would, by the Spirit, take the word and work deep into our intentions, our desires, our motivations, our imaginations, so that we might be changed by beholding Jesus from one degree of glory to another, so that we might go out and declare and display the kingdom of Christ and commit ourselves with a mind to do the work of the kingdom. In his king's name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask my son Josiah to come up here for a second. And so, as, as goofy as this may be, let me introduce Josiah. And I'm going to ask Josiah to take these Lego blocks and to build a wall. And I'm going to go ahead and, and let him start building that wall right here while I begin. So, we went on vacation last week. And I remember at one time, we started gardening. And all the hard work and looking great, that was the garden was looking. But when we went on the vacation and we came back, we found that our garden was overran with weeds. And it turns out that the, the weeds don't care whether you go on vacation or not. And if you've ever had any relational problems, maybe in your marriage, it turns out that dirty dishes don't care if you may be about to get a divorce. And so, it also turns out that the world and the flesh and the devil don't care if you're trying to build your life. So Josiah's doing this, but I want to remind you, Josiah, that this is my house, and you can't just do whatever you want here. I want you to know that you're going to fail building this. I'm not going to let you finish. I want you to know that that I can't even go, go through with this, so you can stop. <laughs> because what, what I was beginning to do there, and I, I couldn't even bring myself to do, is to tell him that he was a failure, and that's why he would fail. To tell him that this job that he had would never be completed because I'm the one in power and control in this situation. I'm his dad, and I'm the pastor. I'm the one standing here preaching. The point of all this is, is it's really hard to build something while you're in a battle. Just how you can really stop. Good job, thank you. <laughs> wanted you to see that. Again, I couldn't bring myself to ridicule and shame him like I've intended to. But we have real enemies in our lives. Enemies the Bible calls the world, the flesh, and the devil who, who take great pleasure in ridiculing us. Who take great pleasure in confusing us, attacking us, whether personally or through physical means through discouraging us, and through just being this ongoing presence in our life. And yet in the middle of all of that attack, we've been called by Jesus to go and make disciples. We've been called to build our lives upon the foundation that He has laid. And yet it's hard to build while you're in a battle. So what's going on here in the book of Nehemiah, and I don't want to stretch uh, the... The hermeneutics here use a $5 word to, to just get some sermon points out here. But the call of Nehemiah is for him to build the walls. And as one commentator said, his important challenge was to organize defending the wall without neglecting the most important task of rebuilding the wall. That is, he couldn't be so concerned with the, the defensive aspect, the protective aspect, that he forgot the very purpose to which he was called which was to be used by God to rebuild the city of God that was to be a light to the nations, that was to be a blessing to the world as God's people were built up around the lordship of Yahweh. No doubt there are some of you right now who feel this. It's what's going on in our lives, in our homes, in our churches, in our world. 
You want to be a part of the prayer answered on earth as it is in heaven, and yet the enemies don't care. So some of you may be tempted to quit, or some of you may have already quit in some way or be quitting. You just went into like a survival mode. You just went into it, and my goal is for life is to just not be dead or to not be humiliated. But like me and I were called to defend without being distracted from the mission. Now we may reel from this, but although it, it, it seems so obvious when it's pointed out, we seem, we seem to forget it in the way that we respond. Or I know personally that I do. I act as if the, the, the ridicule of the enemy from within or from without. I act as if the, the attacks to confuse. I, I act as if the, the assaults to bring great discouragement. Sometimes I let these things get at me and it makes me bitter and it makes me mean and it makes me distant and it makes me detached and it, and it puts me in these fantasies of, of another life that would be easier, of another calling that wouldn't cost so much and, and, and might pay much more. But if we think throughout the whole story of God from the very beginning, there's been an enemy attacking what God's been about building. From the garden to Canaan, to Nehemiah, to the life of Jesus himself, to the life of the early church. It's that the work of God to build a, a, a world for his glory and our joy in him is under attack. But the gospel gives us the hope that we can build while we battle. That we must build while we battle we can if we can pray while we work. So this is what we're going to see in this chapter. This is one of those chapters that's just got so much in it. And so we, I'm going to do my best to hit some high points, but I encourage you to dive deeper. So how do we do this? The first, the first thing we're going to look at is how do we build during the battle of ridicule, of accusation, of words. And we see this in verses 1 through 6. We've read the chapter a lot here, so I'm going to reference these verses, but you can look at them as we go. The first thing we see here in these verses is Nehemiah's response to the enemy's ridicule. And the enemy's ridicule is strong. In verse 1, we see that, that they're, they're mad. Sanballat is, is, is crazy mad here. He's enraged. We remember Sanballat is this regional leader of Samaria to the north of Israel. And, and we know that people rage out of fear. Out of anxiety. So Sanballat's losing control. He's, he's losing his image. He's losing his influence. He's losing his power. And so out of that fear comes rage. And then he begins to ridicule God's people with this psychological warfare. So one person summarizes it this way. One commentator, it says, He belittled their qualities. He says, feeble Jews. He points out, you are so weak. You are a weak people. Then he derides their ambitions. Will they restore their wall? He mocks their optimism. Will they offer sacrifices? Because once this is all done, that you know they'd offer sacrifices of thanksgiving to the Lord. Will they really do that? He says they lampoons their enthusiasm. So they're out there working hard. And he's like, they're not going to get this done. They think, they think they're going to get done in a day or something. He undermines their confidence. Will they be able to bring these stones back to life? These burned stones. Then he magnifies their problems. Those heaps of rubble. And then Tobiah adds to it in verse 3 that if a fox went up on that wall, it would fall down. He laughs at their efforts. Ridicule is powerful. And what Nehemiah and the people of God are facing as they go about the business of rebuilding this wall, of fulfilling the mission of God for their lives, is just this constant onslaught of ridicule, of shaming, of pointing out all their weaknesses, their limitations, and their inabilities. Nehemiah felt this. We see his response is prayer and work. I think there's an old Latin phrase that maybe some monks used to use. Ora 
at Labora. If some of you cool people are out there looking for a new tattoo idea. <laughs> Ora et labora. But it's a powerful phrase. Prayer of work. Nehemiah prays in verse 4. Hear our God, for we are despised. It's an honest prayer. By honest, I mean it's wholehearted. He feels the sting of the shame from the enemy's words and accusations. And then he prays for God to vindicate him. We'll, we'll touch on this maybe a little more, but this is a prayer that God would bring justice. It's a prayer for God to act, a prayer for God to, to vindicate his name. For Nehemiah, this wasn't about you know a personal enemy. This was a, about a public attack upon the fulfillment of the promises of the kingdom of God. And Nehemiah prays, God, we're despised. God, would you deliver us for the sake of your work and the building of your kingdom? Would you not let this pass by unaddressed? And in verse 6, we see not only is there honest prayer, but there's honest work. He trusted God. Now, how do we know this, that Nehemiah prayed us in such a way that he casted his cares upon the Lord is because he got back to work. Again, it's honest work. It's wholehearted work. He, he gave the jeering and the justice to God and went to work. Notice it says they had a mind to work. This is very important. They didn't give their minds to the enemies. They gave their minds to the work of God. It's very important. Who do we give our minds to? Who gets our mental energy? Who gets the, 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 that conversation? Who rules our inner dialogue? Because so many of us let the enemy just hook us with that bait of the ridicule, of the accusation, of the shame, and we dwell there, and we, we get in this, this mental battle that some of us live in, and some of us can't sleep because of, and some of us can't even engage in healthy relationships with other people because of. Because our mind gets wrapped up in the words of the enemies instead of the work of the Lord. I remember reading a book, going to a little conference called Bridges Out of Poverty. And many people think that addressing poverty is, is mainly or even merely an issue of finances and of resources. But, but one of the things that I, I've learned and I, I think is true, and I'm no expert, is that, that coming out of poverty, and really coming out of any type of poverty, and there's many kinds, not just a, a poverty of wealth, is mainly about relationships. And one of the things within this, this uh, learning time that I encountered was that if someone wants to come out of poverty, any type of poverty, is, is that we have to address their sphere of immediate relationships and influential relationships. Take, for instance, someone who maybe didn't graduate high school, or maybe they graduated high school, but they want to get a degree so that they can get a, a better type of job, even if that's maybe not a degree, but even some type of, of training. But imagine this, is they, they walk back into these primary sphere of influential relationships, and the first thing they hear is, oh, college girl. Oh, so all of a sudden, I guess you think you're better than us. And if these things aren't said out loud, maybe they're, they're given in more passive, aggressive ways. And so this person with all of this ambition, this desire, and maybe even financial support from outside organizations, even churches, is to walk back into this sphere every day where they're ridiculed, where they're shamed for trying, where they're told things maybe like, you know you'll just be back to where you were. You know where you come from. What we learned in that time, and I think is true, is there's no amount of money that you can throw at that problem because the issue isn't money. The issue is how do we learn to build while we're in that battle? And we've all got to face that. That's all our lives. The ridicule of the enemy is rough. It's hard to work when you're constantly being told you're too weak and you're not enough to get it done. When the world says, 
constantly, you're just a bigot for believing the Bible. We don't want to hear you. Shut up. When the flesh says, you know you're just going to give in eventually. You know it. You know you can't live without that sin. When the devil says, you're my slave. Yeah, I don't care about all that gospel, gospel affirmation stuff. And you know what? God is using you. You're going to live your whole life feeling guilty because of God's presence in your life. Feeling more shame and fear because of God's presence in your life. When you could just be set free if you would be your own God. When the world, the flesh, and the devil influence and lead other people to say things about you, to judge you, to make assumptions about you and your motives, to point out your inabilities, to capitalize on your weaknesses, to manipulate you. We've all got the stories. Maybe some of you are trying to hold your family together. Maybe some of you are you're trying to get to work. Maybe some of you are trying to take these steps and it's just this ridicule from without and within. If you're going to keep building, your response has got to be as real as that ridicule. We've got to give our minds to, to the Lord and to His work and not to the enemy and their words. And that begins, we have to deal with it like Nehemiah did. We have to pray it. Not just power through it. Not just figure out some way to survive it. We've got to bring it to the Lord like Nehemiah did and say, Hear, O our God, I am despised. I feel this. It's not a weakness to feel things. Nehemiah and God's people felt the hurt. They felt the pain. And some of you are feeling an additional high degree of loneliness in the middle of the enemy's ridicule and onslaught because you won't bring it to the Lord. You won't pray it even with other people. As we know, Nehemiah is praying here not to just his God, but to our God. One commentator said this, Prayer is not a convenient device for removing life's problems, but a loving God's provision for coping with them. Certainly God can deliver us. But in this life, we are not promised as God's people the silencing of the enemy. But we are to expect it. But we are not left alone at his roaring. But we are given the presence of God. If we're going to keep building during the battle, we, we, we've got to pray through it, but we've got to work through it. What the enemy wants us to do is to stop the work. He doesn't want to get, let us get to verse 6. So we built the wall. So we did the work. So we gave ourselves to the ordinary, everyday stuff of being a follower of Jesus Christ, of making disciples. The only way we do that is God's voice has to be the loudest in our lives. We have to wake up every day and say, God, what do you have for me today? Who do you say that I am? What are you calling me to join you in? And we give our minds to that. We let them get wrapped up in what His will and His call and His desires are for our lives. That's where sin gets defeated. That's where the enemy gets silenced. Not by meditating constantly on our sin, but by giving ourselves completely to God's call. This is how we battle during ridicule. But also, we have to battle through confusion. We see this in verses 7 through 9. Nehemiah's response against this enemy's plan for confusion. So in verses 7 and 8, we see the enemies have got even angrier. So we got Sanballat here, Tobiah, and, and the Arabs. Remember Gershom or Geshem, this guy that's leading this, this Arab uh, contingent. And we have the Ammonites, the Ashdodites. Everybody's getting mad. And if we had a, a map here, we could show geographically how basically Nehemiah and the people of Israel are surrounded. And they're all upset because they see the work of God going forward and they see them losing their power, influence, and control within this area. And so they all plot together. They're united. 
to fight against Jerusalem and notice to cause confusion in it. Now this leads us to believe that, that this is not typical warfare. Remember that Nehemiah comes with the authorization of Artaxerxes to do this work. So for the people to attack Nehemiah directly and out in the open, this is like attacking Artaxerxes. So like they know we, we can't mess with Persia here. But they can engage in what we might nowadays call guerrilla warfare or sort of terrorist attack with the goal to create confusion. If ridicule is not enough while we try to build, confusion makes it harder. Particularly confusion that is caused through physical attack. It messes with our clarity. It messes with our consensus. You're going to do something again. You want to... You're, you're having a horrible fight in a relationship and your car breaks down. It doesn't help things. You're already struggling with a season of life and you get a debilitating sickness. You're already having a horrible day and you get a call that someone you love now wants to be out of your life. What does Nehemiah do in the face of the enemy's physical attacks with the goal of confusion? Well, at the risk of being repetitive, we're, we're back to Ora et Labora, to, to prayer and work. But, but to, to slice this up a little differently for us to maybe help us is faith and wisdom. So notice in verse 9, and we prayed to our God. We prayed. And we also set a guard as a protection against them day and night. There was work. There was wisdom. Again, sometimes we, we miss the point of, of warfare when it comes to terrorism. So terrorists... And again, no expert here. Their goal is not to wage a, a, a normal type of warfare where like a, a whole country's overtaken or a city or like two armies line up. Still still amazes me there was a point in time in history where there was that type of war where people would just line out and walk out on an open battlefield and say, let's kill each other with dignity and the most people left are standing. The goal of, of terrorism is to mainly create widespread fear, paranoia, and a sense that life can't go on as normal. It's, it's, it's bombs being planted around cities or in fields to where instead of walking confidently to work every day, people say, I think I may just stay home. Or if I do go to work, I'm going to have to tiptoe around and, and I, I'm just going to have to get through the day. This is, this is the goal of this type of, of guerrilla or terroristic warfare is to create fear, paranoia, and unrest and disrupt life as it was meant to be. This is what the enemies of God do. The world, the flesh, and the devil, I believe, and we had more time to bear this out through the New Testament, seek to do this same thing because it creates this confusion in our lives. It creates this doubt. It creates this hesitancy. It creates this suspicion even of other people. Do I, are, are you one of them? Because we don't know who's who. We become overwhelmed. And as someone said, when people get overwhelmed, they look for someone to blame. And when people become super confused and suspicious, paranoid, the mission of God either slows down drastically or it stops. So we've got to learn to keep building during the battle of confusion that creates doubt and division. One of the ways the enemy loves to do this, we've touched on this already a little bit, is through what we might call pattern nuisances. So in the, in the spirit of this terroristic type warfare, think of just little bombs in your life to create confusion. To make you think, am I really in the will of God? Is this really right for me to do? Should I really give myself to this? Physical ailments, cars falling apart. Now, 
I'm, I'm not saying let's be the type of person who thinks there's a, a demon behind every bush. But I don't think that's really our problem as Americans. Our problem is we don't realize is that there is an unseen spiritual world that is constantly at work to undermine the kingdom of Christ and the building of that city on a hill that our calling is to be as the church. So sometimes I, I, I do think like we see in the book of Job and we see in other places in the scriptures that the, that the enemy is at work to just, to just poke our wounds, to mess with our lives, to confuse us. Whether it be those small disruptions of ailments, of cars, big surprises, coronaviruses, cancers, bigger sicknesses, bigger chemical imbalances. I believe that there's misunderstandings that are sown within relationships. I personally believe and think that I've participated in people who actually, I think that the enemy works to where you actually hear something the other person actually didn't say. It wasn't that they're lying. It's, 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 there's this, this work in our minds to create this confusion. It's just dropping all of these bombs to get us so disoriented and paranoid that we are not united in the work of building the kingdom of Christ. If the enemy can do this and we're not aware of it, then we will turn against each other or we will turn inward. Our Sunday gathering, our missional communities, our fight clubs, our lives of everyday mission, our commitment to our common mission, all of those things get pushed to the side when we are confused and afraid and intimidated. So what's the response? We must pray and work faith and wisdom. We've got, if we're going to keep building, we've got to pray alone and we've got to pray together. This is not, I had a, I had a, a professor in Bible college said, please don't every sermon make your application, read the Bible and pray. So I'm not trying to do that. But I am saying, we've got to realize that nothing really goes away from that call. You may be worked like Job in your life. But what you've got to do is you're going to keep building when you're living in the seasons of the Job, the Josephs, the Jeremiah's of Scripture, is you've got to pray through to the end of the book of Job, to Job 38 through 42, where Job stands, not with his eyes focused on all the attacks of the enemies, but on a sovereign and good God who is ruling the universe and who is committed to building something beautiful in this world in spite of an enemy who hates him and hates us. If we're being divided as the church, we've got to pray through with Jesus in John 17 where he's praying, I, 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 I do not ask God that you take them out of the world, that you leave them in the world. But there's an enemy coming against them and I pray that you would make them one as we are one. And then we've got to keep building. We pray together, but... We don't just pray to our God. We've got to set a guard. We've got to do the work. Some of us are just praying, and maybe it's time to start planning. Some of us are just planning, and it's time for us to start praying. But it's faith and wisdom. It's prayer and work. You need to ask yourself, where do I keep getting tripped up in my paranoia and my doubt and my distraction? The enemy doesn't want you to slow down enough to address that and to set a guard. In your relationships, you need to ask, where do we keep getting stuck? Where do, where, where do we keep getting held back from actually working towards the call of God in our lives together? Then we need to ask the Spirit to help us form a plan for protection. It begins with prayer. Some of you in your relationships, some of you alone, you need to say, man, we've been worked. There's bombs dropping left and right. And we just kind of retreated. Step one, let's pray together. Let's pray our hearts before the Lord. In view of the enemy's attack. Let's realize we're not enemies, but we have an enemy. And let's have a plan. Let's have a plan for how we can keep building our lives even though we have to walk out into these landmines every day of the enemy. So we build during the battle facing ridicule, but also through confusion 
And lastly, through discouragement. We build during the battle by discouragement. We see this in verses 10 through 12. And it really follows through the end of the book in a certain sense. The first way is that, that they're discouraged. Notice there's the problem from the outside, but now it's coming from the inside. It says, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So there's been the attack from the outside, but now it's coming from the inside. But this is where it can get even worse. It's as if the enemy infiltrates the people of God without actually even having to be there. But all the ridicule and all the attacks have caused God's people to grow weary. Verse 12 says, in the face of the continued intimidation of verse 11, is that the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times you must return to us. Now imagine how that feels. Not just one time, but ten times. We don't know if that's a literal number or a number of emphasis, but either way it's like your own people saying, please just quit and come home. Please just quit and come home. Please stop doing the work of God and let's just come here and try to be safe together. These enemies are, are threatening to kill us, verse 11. We, we overhear their whispers. Please quit. Please quit. Again, back to Job, but maybe not as extreme. Job's wife, why don't you just curse God and die? Well, here it's not that extreme, but it's really hard when the people closest to you in your life don't give encouragement, but discouragement. But sometimes the enemy sows that in our own hearts. And I know we hear that voice. Again, one person has said that in the history of the church, pessimism has always been a greater problem than atheism. Discouragement is a powerful weapon. So Nehemiah points them to hope. Verses 13 and 14, we see that he takes practical action again. In these verses, it, he, he, he responds to this because the discouraged often need stabilization. When you're discouraged, sometimes I need something tangible that I can see. I need a, a wind that I can cling to. But Nehemiah not only takes this practical action by shoring up the wall and positioning people to protect the people while they work, but then Nehemiah just basically preaches the gospel. Because the discouraged need more than stabilization, the, the, gospel, the discouraged need the security of God's word. And so he preaches, as it were, the law. Do not be afraid of them. It's a command. Don't give in to the fear. Remember, discouragement and encouragement is not just feeling sad or feeling happy. To, to encourage someone is to instill courage in them. It's not just being a nice guy. It's, it's putting courage in someone to continue the life that God has called them to live, to fulfill the call that God has called them to give. So do not be afraid of them. But how can they do that? How can Nehemiah say such a thing? How can Nehemiah speak to their emotions? How? Because he gives them the gospel. He says in verse 14, Remember the Lord. You can see everything else outside of you and it looks so bad and it looks so overwhelming and you're just hearing this continued call from yourself and even from others to quit and go home. But remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember who He is. When Nehemiah says these words, a whole history of redemption is being swept up into this call to action. Remember who He is as Creator. Remember the One who's redeemed you from Egypt. The remember the One who brought you into this land. The remember the One who slayed the Philistines. Remember the One who has provided again and again. Remember the One who, even though because of your sin and your rebellion, you were exiled and brought back to this situation, is so committed to you, He is rebuilding all that you tore down. And then he gives them this call to action. He says, and fight. 
remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He gets specific here. He places upon them the urgency. Don't give up. There are real people. Real people whom this is all about. It's about their protection. It's about their purpose. It's about the promises of God being filled in their lives. So much bigger than the momentary suffering. Some of you no doubt are missing baseball right now. As I thought about this, I, I thought about Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson, I think most know, is the, the first African American to go into what was at that time the highest level of Major League Baseball. And he was, at the beginning, mocked and ridiculed relentlessly, threatened, verbally attacked. Could go watch not a movie endorsed the movie 42 is one that, that shows some of this i remember reading a book about it even as a kid and it, it still sticks with me and you think how did he keep going uh, one writer said it this way that he had moments when he was tempted to crack and give up one particular time in philadelphia playing the phillies he said, for one wild, rage-crazed minute, I thought, forget Branch Rickey's noble experiment. That was uh, the Dodgers manager, general manager at that time. He said he only went on because he remembered that this was not just symbolism wasn't a symbolic act of some gesture from some human leader. He said he knew if he could integrate Major League Baseball, it would affect lots of people's lives. And he knew if he lashed out, he would lose the opportunity. If he quit, if he let the enemy take control of the narrative, if he let the enemy put him into just fight survival mode, it would affect so many people's lives. And he didn't, and it did. It's hard not to quit. People will come and ask. When the discouragement gets so strong, when it feels like we're maybe living with this just cloud of darkness over our lives at times, it distorts reality. One person writes, depression always distorts reality. It just throws everything out of perspective. I know there's a great spectrum, a degree of, of, of depression, some more clinical and some more common and everything in between. But wherever you fall on that, I think any of us that have been in it and came through it and went back and forth know, yeah, it, it just it's like you've got these dark sunglasses on. You get tired. I mean, we can, we can resonate with these people. As individuals, as a church, we're a church now, and you know the honeymoon is over with our church plan. There's lots of changes that make things hard. But in your own lives, in your own relationships, it's easy to just think, why don't we just quit? Why do we keep trying to build something when existence seems like the wind? The enemies don't let up. What do we do? Prayer and work. Work, we take practical action. Doing the same thing is not going to help. You've got to be aware, how does the enemy manipulate, control, and work towards the causing discouragement in my life? And we can't accept that. not meant to shame us in any way here, but God, God's will for your life is not for you to live in a constant state of discouragement. God's will for your life is not to be Eeyore. That's not a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. And Jesus wept and he was sad. And he was angry. 
and we know that that full range of emotions is, is what a part of it, just what it means to be human. But all of those are to be submitted to Christ. And there's to be a courage that we receive, and we've got to learn to walk in that practically. Again, Nehemiah, part of the beauty of this book is Nehemiah doesn't just pray. He prays, but he works. He executes wisdom. For some of you, it may mean you need to learn some just practical, self-soothing skills. How do I just calm my body down, my brain down, to even engage in the prayer? Some of you can't pray because you can't be present. Some of you may need to schedule a daily walk. Some of you need to put in some just like really just practical steps in your life. You may need to change your diet, your sleep patterns. Your exercise. Some of you may need to get a hobby for God's glory. But don't just sit there. Even though the enemy's telling you just to go home, just to quit. And pray the gospel. The word of God is calling me. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the one who turned the water into wine. We can see better than Nehemiah did. Who, who stilled the storms. Who cleansed the leper. Who raised the dead. Who rescued the possessed. He's with you. You're not the asterisk in his call. His kingdom. And he wants you to rise up and fight. For your brothers, your sisters, your sons, your daughters, your friends, your families, your homes, your neighborhood. Your, your missional community has a common mission that you've been called to reorient your life to, to serve. What the enemy wants you to do is to get you so discouraged, so confused, and so ridiculed, and so trapped in the inside and that, that you don't see what's around you and who's around you who need the gospel. We need to feel the urgency the urgency of the call of Jesus to go and make disciples. To see the crowds like he saw them and to have compassion on them. And to be laborers into the harvest. And we need to realize with no apology that heaven and hell are at stake. This is why the enemy wants us to hear the message to just go home. But as our text comes to an end, how do we tie those three things together? Battling during ridicule, battling during confusion, battling during discouragement. Well, Nehemiah gives us a picture of what it looks like in verses 15 through 23. The first thing is, in verse 15, the enemies are frustrated, but they're not annihilated, so they're there. They're just kind of there, lurking. Always lurking. So Nehemiah lines up this, this kind of vision and this plan where the people are, are going to work with uh, swords in one hand or on their sides and uh, shovels or work utensils in the other. This is a beautiful image. Charles Spurgeon called it the, the sword and the trowel. And this, this is an image of what it looks like to build while you battle. I'm going to skip to all the details right there in those verses. You can look at those. But the people are ready to build while they battle. It's just a posture that they know they're going to have to take. They're going to do it together though. Verses 19 through 20. So they build while they battle. They have the sword. They have the trowel. Which I think is just another word for, for a shovel. Or a, this little thing that you mix the mortar with the bricks. In verses 19 and 20, they're ready to have each other's back. So Nehemiah's walking around with this trumpeter because he knows they've got to go spread out to do the work. So again, they, it's not like they get to all work together. they got to go do the work. And the wall's big. They're spread out. So he's got his trumpeter at his side. This is cool. Because he's like, whenever somebody come, if somebody tries to come and attack one of us that's been separated, I'm going to sound the trumpet and everybody's going to come together and protect each other. So imagine, they're working, sword here or in hand, a utensil here and they've got one ear listening for the trumpet because we're, we're protecting ourselves, but we're also going to have it, our brothers and sisters backs then in verses 21 through 23 we see 
that there's a lot of sacrifice involved in this. The enemy doesn't sleep, so God's people have to always be vigilant, even at night. And then Nehemiah leads by example. And this is the kind of leaders God has called us all to be. It says, Neither I nor my brothers, my servants, the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, and each kept his weapon in his right hand. Now we know to some extent this was a particular season in the life of Nehemiah that in some ways bears witness in our lives to always being vigilant and watchful as Jesus called us to be and at the same time praise the Lord that all seasons are not as intense. But we are all called to be ready to love others at the expense of our own comfort. If you've been around sports at all, one common phrase is always, defense wins championships. And while that's true, generally speaking, you can't win without offense. So you could have the team that has the best defenders, most steals, most rebounds, most blocked shots, but if you can't score, then the odds are this score is not going to be zero to zero, and you will lose. You've got to have both. Some disciples of Jesus are all defense or all offense. Some are all offense and no defense. If you're all defense and no offense, nothing ever gets advanced. You, you probably have the best doctrinal statements. You probably have uh, the maybe even at sometimes the best prayer meetings. You, you have all of these type of things that are just really inward focused. But nothing, nothing gets built. Nothing really gets done. Nothing gets expanded. If you're all offense and no defense, nothing ever lasts. You're just like these flash-in-the-pan Christians or churches that go out and do all these great things and in a few years they're nowhere to be found because the enemy just picked them apart. What we see in Nehemiah 4 is the way of Jesus is both. It's defense and offense. It's battling while we build. And yet we see this call is, is for us in some ways even so much harder than for Nehemiah. Because we live under this relentless attack. Not merely from these external foes, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Some of you, no doubt, right now may be feeling even more intimidated, overwhelmed. Because sometimes awareness at first does bring a greater desperation. So what we have to do is we have to look beyond Nehemiah if we're to have hope. If we're to read this as not merely a story that happened in ancient Israel, that for a season brought about some sort of great change. We've got to look beyond Nehemiah. We've got to look to Jesus. The one whom God called to rebuild not just a broken wall, but a broken world. The one whom was sent to this world to make beautiful all that was broken. To restore all that had been wrecked. And you know what he did? He faced constant ridicule. He lived under ridicule. From his own biological family he was told to shut up. He was always attacked to bring confusion. He was called the devil himself. He was constantly being discouraged. He was unrelentingly facing opposition. But he never once, he never once took his eyes off of the mission that God called him to give his life towards. He never once lived one second outside of the shadow of the cross and the glory of the empty tomb. And he did it not because we're, Nehemiah mainly in this story, but because we're the ones who, apart from the grace of God, have given ourselves to the opposition of God's work. 
We're the ones who find ourselves in this story. Usually those who go home. Usually those who quit. Usually those who put our own personal vindication and justification over the glory of God. And yet we have hope today because Jesus. When he went to the cross, the ridicule didn't cease. The attack to confuse didn't cease and the attempts to discourage heightened. But he stayed faithful to the work. He hang on the cross building what God called him to build. He took the justice of God's wrath upon himself for all the enemies of God who would turn from self and become the sons and daughters of God, the people of God, the city of God that God is seeking to rebuild, the church that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then unlike any leader in the history of any world, religion, or movement, he rose from the grave to renew and rebuild all things, especially us for the glory of God. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he gave us the Spirit of God to indwell us and lead us so that we might fight for our brothers, our sisters, our sons and daughters and our homes and our cities so that we might not live with our minds ruled by the enemy, but we might be given the very mind of Christ. So that we know that no accusation can lead to our condemnation. So that we might be baptized as those risen. So that we might take the bread and the cup as those both forgiven and filled with the Spirit. we must take this good news and walk into the battle and keep building. Could we imagine what this might look like for us to take that posture? Sword and trowel. Building during the battle. If so, and we do so in Christ, we find ourselves in a great line men and women like Nehemiah who didn't listen to the taunts of the world follow the voice of God. As one historian writes, the story of church, Christ's church across the centuries is a chronicle of exemplary heroism and sacrificial service. Many of the outstanding personalities of Christian history had to cope with intense hardship over and over they proved there was no service without suffering. Some examples are John Calvin teaching, writing, and preaching despite repeated attacks of the Corton fever, tuberculosis, renal colic, chest infections, gout, nephritis. One is hardly surprised that he confessed to occasional impatience fever. Richard Baxter Expounding scripture, encouraging friends by supporting letters, writing books. He says, a pen in God's hand, though scarcely free from pain on any day throughout his whole life. I don't know why we don't talk about these things more. John Wesley, George Whitfield, Uplifting Christ and winning souls, but they lived constantly in very unhappy marriages. Charles Haddon Spurgeon preaching sometimes at his best when he was in the dark valley of depression. Tom Bernardo doing everything humanly possible for the orphan children of London whilst being cruelly slandered by a man constantly throughout the whole time. Charles Simeon who would, who would come to preach at his church on Sunday mornings and the members, they had doors on the pews locked the doors on the pews so no one could come in and sit and listen. And anyone that wanted to hear the gospel had to listen from the outside. 
John Bunyan reminded his contemporaries of inevitable sacrifice. He said, the believer that is resolved for heaven, if Satan cannot win him by flatteries, he will endeavor to weaken him by discouragements. We have a great call in our lives. But the building that we're called to work on, it's not going to happen without a battle. And the battle will only come through gospel prayer and gospel work. Father, we thank you for the presence of Jesus in our lives. We ask you now that as we remember the bread and the cup, even as though we're not able to partake of it, that our confidence would be in his finished work and not our own. That we would do this work as those already secured in its victory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come out of this time, we wish we were together tasting the bread and the cup and participation with Christ, but we're not able to do it. We do